Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. And I feel like we should just skip right into what you're drinking, because you just sampled the concoction that you brewed upstairs, and the look of utter shock that befell your face was a sight to behold. So what are you drinking? That's true. Um, so, yes. So I had forgotten to stir it, and I looked at my drink, and I'm like, oh, shoot, I need to stir this during the intro music. So I'm stirring, stirring, stirring. And, uh, stir, stir, stir. I took a, took a sip, and it... It uh, came a little stronger than I thought it was going to be. It is, um, what what flavor of squirt is Ruby that? Ruby red. Ruby red squirt with amaretto and uh, pink kinky. So it's a very red drink. Mm. And uh, yes, it tastes very red. Yeah. <laughs> like, it tastes wow. super red. Yes. It's weird because I know what you mean. You know what I mean. Yeah. I do. Every, everybody knows what I mean when I say that. Yeah. <laughs> What are you drinking? So I'm just doing regular ruby red squirt without the extra red and some water because I'm parched. Ooh, that's As fair. always, hydrate or dehydrate once again. Well, and and I needed a drink of my drink because before I came down to record, I uh, snagged one of those little Oreos that are the mm. orange Halloween cream ones, which are the best because they taste orange. In relationship to the drink that tastes red, mm. the Halloween Oreos taste orange. Science. And yes. And and they're better. They're better that way. They weirdly <sighs> taste better. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Huh. But they don't taste orange like citrus. They taste orange like orange. Like the color. Yeah. 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 It's its its, its own oh. thing. Isn't that crazy? It is. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, what do you have for us today by way of a feel-good fact? Actually, no, it's not feel-good fact. It's October. It is. So it's a spooky fact It's this, a spooky this month. fact. Given that when this drops, the following day will be Friday the 13th. Mm. I thought, let's do a Friday the 13th fact. So brace yourselves. Paraskevodekaphobia is the fear of Friday the 13th. <laughs> Paraskevodekaphobia? Yeah. Wow. That's a mouthful, but it... it I hyphenated it so that I would be able to actually see each letter. <laughs> it makes me think of the iambic pentameter, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. like Shakespeare wrote in. It, it's it's a word that fits, I think, in that iambic pentameter. Huh. I can't say it again because I paris get paraskevodekaphobia. Paraskevodekaphobia. That mm-hmm. would totally be in a Shakespeare uh, uh, play. If Why you wouldn't known. it be? Yeah. 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 That's a fun fact. That's more of a fun fact than a spooky fact, but it's related to Friday the 13th, so it's a fun spooky fact. You're understanding fact. the basic premise of the spooky fact. I get it. I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is, it took a few. It did. For it to really set in, and now you're like, oh. Now now I'm engulfed in the spooky fun, not just spook. Yes. All right. Love, what you got for us this week? So quick content warning before we begin. This story mentions suicide and suicidal ideation at multiple points, and so be warned if that's a sensitive subject for you. Mm. In the early afternoon hours of October 24, 1988, 18-year-old Cheryl Gregory had returned to her family home after her morning classes were out. Her identical twin, Sharon, had had the house to herself that morning before her classes were set to begin, and it was a pretty normal day. When Cheryl walked up the stairs, however, she noticed something that was definitely not normal. On the stairs and in the hallway leading to the bathroom was blood everywhere. Mm. Horrified, Cheryl made her way into the bathroom and made an awful discovery. There in the bathtub was her twin sister, who had been brutally stabbed to death. This is the story of the murder of Sharon Gregory and the Friday the 13th copycat killer. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Oh, that's sad. Super sad. So wait, this is the Friday the 13th copycat killer, but it's October 20-somethingth. Yes. Yes. Okay, it'll come come full circle. This one's a doozy. Got it. Okay, so let's kick things off by talking about Sharon Gregory. Sharon and her twin sister Cheryl were born on March 26, 1970 in Greenfield, Massachusetts to their parents Edward and Barbara Gregory. Sharon was an incredibly bright person and she excelled in high school and in her short time as a college student. During her sophomore year at Greenfield High School, Sharon was a member of the Flag Corps and joined DECA, the Distributive Education Clubs of America, which, 
I'm sure you've probably heard of oh, DACA. Yeah. yeah, it's an international group established for high school and college age students, and it still exists today. Mm-hmm. She also received a certificate for participating in her school's peer education counseling program and another certificate for being a member of the Exponents, which is a school newspaper during her junior and senior year. Hmm. She majored in college preparatory throughout high school as well. Sharon graduated from Greenfield High School in the spring of 1988 and went on to Greenfield Community College, where she majored in liberal arts with a special focus on art. Those closest to her shared that she absolutely adored the arts, particularly theater, and was described as being compassionate and caring towards every person around her at all times. Oh, that's she sweet. worked. She was a really cool person. She worked at Franklin Medical Center in the food services department and lived at home with her twin sister and their parents while she attended college. She also had a boyfriend named Chris and was generally well-liked by just about everybody, her free spirit often inspiring those around her to have fun and enjoy the moment. One thing that came as a surprise to everyone, Sharon included, was a newfound interest in studying psychology after she began attending an elective psychology class in college. And it was an assignment in this class that would lead Sharon to getting involved with our next important character, 19-year-old Mark Branch. So this is frustrating, but I found multiple dates of birth for Mark. Some sources said that he was 18 at the time of this story, while others say that he was 19. Hmm, And it sometimes switched even in the same document. Oh, weird. Yeah. So I actually don't know how old he is. So I'm going to stick with 19. Yeah, that's just for the sake of consistency. So Mark was also from Greenfield, Massachusetts. He grew up in a two parent home with his parents, Betty and Richard, and the family lived in a beautiful home in town. Mark always struggled socially, opting to spend a lot of his time alone at school, and just like Sharon Gregory, Mark also attended Greenfield High. Given his tendency to spend his time by himself, he was viewed by other classmates as a loner, or weird, or whatever other thing that kids might come up with to describe someone different from themselves. This led Mark to being purposely excluded and ostracized from a pretty young age. Oh, that's sad too. However, despite his quiet and unassuming demeanor, he'd been in trouble many times over the years for threatening and harassing other kids at school, particularly the girls. Oh, Mark. Yeah, Mark. Not helping yourself, bud. Yeah. It was learned that in high school, Mark had made a list of girls that he was interested in, and then he would go down the list one by one, calling each of the girls and sexually harassing them over the phone and sometimes even in person. Ooh. Yeah. And to make things worse, Mark would also write letters to the girls on his list, graphically detailing his plans of how he would kill them if he got the chance. It's like very serious behavior. Different kind of interest than I was expecting you to say. Yeah. This is definitely, yeah, it's, it's, it breaches into pathological territory Uh and like, uh, very, uh, over the top even, Mm -hmm. um, um, fascination infatuation yeah which which can get dangerous really fast if it's unchecked so fast yeah after they were made aware of the situation at greenfield high mark's parents opted to remove him from the school and sent him to new salem academy a private secondary alternative school but things didn't improve after he transferred which i just want to give the branches a gold star for recognizing mm-hmm. a dangerous pattern of behavior and doing something about it. Yeah. That's not always the case in these kinds of stories. Right. It's so easy for them to ignore it, make push excuses it away, for make, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Instead they were like, they this didn't isn't minimize good. it. They yeah. they're like, this is bad. We mm-hmm. need to do something about it. And they acted right away. That's good. A student who wanted to remain anonymous in the report that I read for this story said that when he first came to new Salem, she felt bad for Mark because he was so quiet and he seemed lonely. Plus, it's hard being the new kid, so she reached out to him and attempted to befriend him. Despite her kindness, Mark also lashed out at her, making similar threats as he'd previously made, but ramping things up to the point that he had stolen a scalpel, stabbed it through a photo of this girl, and pinned it to her locker. Oh, jeez. He also threatened another anonymous female student with a knife. Man, okay, this is... I, I, you're setting something up. I can already kind of see, mm-hmm. but it's uh, really just sad because it seems like it, it's it's, and, and you know we're not trying to to armchair diagnose on this podcast. No, we I want to be super careful to not. So we I won't go that far, but I will point out there seems to be something 
not connecting right Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. when like, it'd be one thing if it was like he showed interest in a girl, she bullied him for it. And then he reacted poorly. Mm -hmm. That still wouldn't be cool, but it would at least there would be like an explanation for it. This is this girl's kind to him. And instead of being like kind in return and even surprised at her kindness, he reacts so negatively. Mm-hmm. And well, and he even could have been like, I'm not interested in making friends. Bye. And then like left it at that. And that would have even been better. Right. But like the fact that he's now it escalated. There's so a quickly. type of threat. Yeah. That has yeah. escalated from there. Mark was sent to the McLean hospital in Belmont where he received inpatient psychiatric care. So once again, his parents are on the ball. They're like, mm. all right, he needs help. The former director of New Salem Academy, Nat Needle, recalled that Mark was a diligent student, but that he left the school for social rather than academic reasons. And that's all that we really have about his time at New Salem. Hmm. Medical professionals at McLean Hospital declined to comment on Mark's condition or behavior during his time there in order to protect his confidentiality. Yeah, but, that makes sense. But the director did confirm that there is a wing in that hospital that specialized in adolescent psychiatric care. At mm-hmm. that facility. So, like, he basically said, like, we treated him, but I'm not telling you that we treated him, essentially. Right, right, right. Kind of worked around it. From there, it's believed that Mark was enrolled at another school known as New Directions, a program run by the Northampton Center for Children and Families designed for special needs students between the ages of 8 and 19. This school specialized in working with students with learning disabilities, emotional and or behavioral problems. And though the school wouldn't confirm whether or not Mark had been a student there, friends and people close to Mark said that he had been enrolled at New Directions and would come home to Greenfield on the weekends. Hmm. So it was kind of like a a small group home setting. There was like a small number of students at a time that would be educated and treated. And they, it sounds like they were accredited even because Hmm. he could receive a high school diploma there and everything. So- yeah. That's wow. That's really honestly a kind lot of, of impressive. great resources, especially yeah. for the eighties. I'm yeah. like, okay, like we should all have hmm. these kinds of resources in every state. But right. anyway, Mark had also worked at the local stop and shop and at video expo one, a video sales and rental store on the weekends. So all in all, Mark was obviously struggling in many different ways throughout his entire youth. But despite this, he did manage to make and keep a few friends who all described him in a similar way. They said that he was a nice person, but he struggled with feelings of inadequacy and believed that everyone around him looked down on him and thought that they were better than him. He would vent his frustrations by talking about killing people, but none of his friends ever believed that he would actually be capable of something like Mm. that. They saw him as passive and quiet, not secretly violent or capable of murder. So it's like a really intense inferiority complex. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Kind of like in a weird way turns itself around into a, a like a backwards superiority complex. It's a like, vicious cycle. That yeah. kind of that line of thinking is a very vicious cycle. Yeah. I do not envy it at all. One thing that gets brought up a lot with this story is one of Mark's interests, which is horror movies. And in particular, the Friday the 13th movies. Hmm. For those who aren't familiar with the movies or for those that might need a refresher, Friday the 13th centers on the killer Jason Voorhees, the antagonist who spends his time exacting revenge on the cool kids, kids like the ones responsible for his death at Camp Crystal Lake as a child. Throughout the franchise, the silent, indestructible character stalks and gruesomely slaughters teenagers, typically depicted as cool and attractive with his machete, with knives, (laughs) ice picks, And the list goes on. Mm -hmm. If you've seen it, you know that he's very creative with his kills. Yes. And Mark was a massive fan. His bedroom at home was plastered with movie posters and Jason's trademark hockey masks. And he'd even purchased a Jason Voorhees costume of his own that he planned to wear for Halloween in the weeks leading up to today's story. Hmm. So before we move on, I've got to make the clarification that horror movies do not cause people to become homicidal maniacs nor should we perceive horror fans as dangerous by any stretch. As many of our listeners know, I myself am a huge horror fan Mm -hmm. and I have been my entire life. So I don't want anyone to think that Mark Branch being a horror fan is somehow an indictment on all horror fans or the horror genre. Right. Which I feel like it's just important to be super crystal clear about that because the way that this story has been talked about historically has been like, like very much causation or what, mm. what is it? Correl- correlation equals causation and that's because he had this yeah. interest. 
this was the problem. Yeah. And we'll get more into that as we go. Yeah. But I do just want to make sure that I'm not mincing my words here. Yeah. This is a, it is an important element of this story. Yeah. Well, it's, it's important just in social circles too. Like mm-hmm. I can remember in high school, middle school, hearing about how violent video games and horror movies equaled you're going to go do terrible things to people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have insane amounts <laughs> of evidence to prove that that has nothing to do with anything. Mm-hmm. There's people who have, are afraid of horror movies who yeah. have done terrible things. Sure. They, they, they never watch them. There's people mm-hmm. who have never played a video game in their life that right. have still done horrible things. Right. And then there's a vast majority of people who are interested in one or both of those things and have never done anything. Right, exactly. So, yeah, it's it's unfair to try to pin, and I get it, people want to pin like a reason on things. And yeah. they want it to be simple. It can't be complicated. It can't be a perfect storm of of bad experiences or unfortunate circumstances. Mm-hmm. It, it has to be this one thing, and that's just not realistic. Right, well, and this, this whole deal, like his interest in horror and in specifically Friday the 13th actually is very relevant specifically to this story. Yeah. Which is why it's like, you can't really leave it out when you're telling it, but you just got to be careful with how you present it. So with the backgrounds of these two people fresh on our minds, let's skip ahead to October 23rd, 1988, one night before Sharon's murder. Mark was at a birthday party for his friend, Derek Ianelli. Derek had a real soft spot for Mark who when he looked at his friend, saw a shy, lonely person trying to figure out their place in the world, but having a hard time due to his mental illness and society's poor treatment of those suffering from mental illness. Hmm. After Derek's party, Mark had plans to meet up with Sharon Gregory and two other friends, but neither of the two friends in question would answer any questions from reporters or police, so we don't really know for sure if they actually did meet up. Hmm. That was the plan. So the following day, October 24th, the Greenfield Police Department received a 911 call from Cheryl Gregory claiming that she had found her sister dead and that she had been murdered in their home. That morning, Cheryl left for school at around 8.45 a.m. and the girl's parents had left a little earlier. Sharon had just gotten out of the shower and when Cheryl left, she left the front door unlocked. When she arrived home just before 12.30 p.m., she discovered Sharon's body and quickly called police. Within Mm. minutes that afternoon, police were sent to the Gregory home, and what they saw when they got there was straight out of a horror movie. When they walked in the front door, they saw a large pool of blood that trailed up the stairway, down the hall, and into the bathroom, leading to 18-year-old Sharon Gregory's deceased body in the bathtub. She was fully clothed and absolutely covered in stab wounds. There were stab wounds on Sharon's head, her face, her back, and her throat had been slashed, obviously with a sharp instrument, which was not found anywhere at the scene and has yet to be recovered. Oh, wow. When asked by police if Cheryl knew anybody who would have wanted to hurt Sharon, Cheryl said yes. She believed it was Mark, but she couldn't remember Mark's last name. But why would Mark want to kill Sharon, especially in such a gruesome manner? First, in the days leading up to her murder, Sharon had confided in her sister that whenever Mark was around, she would catch him staring at her and that she had begun to feel afraid of him. Hmm. Though Cheryl couldn't remember Mark's last name, she did remember where he lived because she had visited his house before. So she gave police directions to Mark's family home on Meadow Lane. When police arrived, they asked Mark's mother, Betty, if she had seen or spoken to her son that day. She said yes, she had, but that he'd left at around 10.30 that morning and she hadn't had contact with him since. Based on testimony from Betty and from the last known person to have seen Mark, a friend of his by the name of Scott Landry, police were able to quickly put together a timeline of Mark's movements that morning. At around 8.15 a.m., Mark was picked up by Scott, who drove him to a counseling session at the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission. He returned home for a short time, and then right around 10.30 a.m., Mark informed his mother that he was going to go hang out with Scott for a little while longer. He had left in his gray Chevy Chevette. According to Scott, Mark had called him and asked him for a ride to his appointment that day because he was running low on gas in his Chevette and because the air conditioner wasn't working right. Hmm. Scott happily agreed. He took Mark to his appointment, and then the two rode back to Mark's house afterwards. 
When they got to Mark's, the guys pulled the AC unit out of Mark's vehicle, I'm assuming to attempt to fix or replace it. Sure. Yeah. And they put it into Scott's truck, or his dad's truck, excuse me. The two arrived at Scott's Greenfield home at around 9.15 a.m. They hung out watching TV casually until Sharon Gregory called Scott at 10.07 a.m., and she was upset. She was crying as she asked Scott if he had a car. He told her that he didn't have a car and asked if she was okay, to which Sharon res- responded with, I'm not sure. She also mm. told him that she had tried to call her boyfriend Chris, but that he wasn't answering, probably because he was in class at the time that she tried to call him. So what this sounds like to me is that Sharon was at home. She was potentially having car troubles mm-hmm. and was stuck at her house without a ride to school. So she just kind of started calling around, hoping to find a ride. Yeah, yeah. It's unclear why Scott denied having access to a vehicle because he'd been driving Mark around in his dad's truck all morning. Right. And Mark's car technically did work. But either way, that's what he said. Hmm. Scott gave her instructions on how to jumpstart a car and told her to call back if she needed any more help. But she never called back. Hmm. After Scott got off the phone with Sharon, Mark asked him if Sharon was home alone, to which Scott replied that yes, she was. After this Mm. super suspicious question, Mark went off into one of the bedrooms to make a private phone call. When he came out of the bedroom, he asked if Scott could drive him back home because he wanted to take his own car to go pick up his check at the stop and shop. So Scott dropped Mark back off at his house just after 1130 a.m. And that was that. Or at least that's what Scott thought at the time. Mm -hmm. Later on the 24th, around 6.30 p.m., a man named Michael Rockwell, a neighbor of the Gregory's, called the police to report that he'd seen something earlier that day. He had been home at around noon and was watching TV when he heard the sound of a car door closing. This was unusual at that time, so he looked out the window and saw a gray Chevette parked in front of the Gregory house on the street, but partially blocking their driveway. Hmm. A young man, roughly six feet in height and somewhere around 180 pounds with dark hair, was exiting the vehicle. He was wearing denim pants and a denim jacket, both appearing to be acid or stonewashed. He went into the Gregory home and came out between three to five minutes later. He sat in his car for a moment, started it, and then pulled away. 30 minutes later, Mr. Rockwell observed Cheryl Gregory getting out of her car and walking into her home. And within only a few more minutes, a swarm of police cars were flooding the scene. Photos of Mark Branch were compared with Mr. Rockwell's description, and they 100% lined up. And so a manhunt began. Wow. So, yeah, very intense. This is super sad. But Scott's mom called their home and informed Scott that one of the Gregory twins had died. I believe she said that one of the Gregory twins had killed herself, but that she didn't know which one. In a Mm. panic, Scott set out to find Sharon's boyfriend, Chris, or Cheryl's boyfriend, Peter. And when he found Chris as he was leaving school, he stopped him and told him that one of the twins was dead, but he didn't know which one. Oh, man. It's like, poor Chris. Oh. At this point, he doesn't know that it was his girlfriend that had been killed or what had even happened. So it's just really sad. Like, I kind of don't blame... I feel like it's really easy when I'm telling this story to forget that these are 18-year-olds. Mm-hmm. These are young people. Right. And so Scott's like, what What are you talking about? I just talked to one of them. Like, I know these girls. What do you mean? Right. So he's trying to figure out what's going on. Well, and the the communication is actually- it's different. It's different, but it's, it's surprisingly fast in this scenario. But yeah. it's not so fast that you can just send a text message. Right. And- also, it's not so fast that you can assume that the people who ought to know first do know. Right. And it's, that they're told in a yeah. in a manner that is befitting of the situation. Right. So it's, it's, it's possible that Scott in 1984. 1988. 1988 mm-hmm. is, so, thank you, mm-hmm. is thinking to himself, oh my gosh, I know this before, likely before all these other people. I need to go tell them mm-hmm. before more people find out. Mm-hmm. before these you know yeah. so it's like it's it's interesting because in 2023 that's not really how we do things anymore yeah we like, don't just roll up to someone's school and tell them devastating news right we we let the the certain processes play themselves out but it, it was just different so it's mm-hmm. that stuck out to me that's really interesting yeah um, not an indictment on, any, on anybody or anything like that it just was interesting to me. Right. So Chris and Scott sped over to the Gregory's home in hopes of finding out what had happened. And when they arrived, they learned the awful truth that Sharon had been murdered. Oh, man. 
Meanwhile, an autopsy was performed on Sharon's remains. It was determined that the weapon used to kill Sharon Gregory had a width of one and a half inches and a length of approximately five inches. She had been stabbed more than a dozen times in her chest and face, and then a dozen more times on the back of her head and back. So viciously stabbed. Yeah. Her throat had also been deeply slit and she had suffered blunt force trauma to the head. Oh my gosh. That's, it's so gruesome. Mm -hmm. That's, and also that's, sounds like a, like, that's not like the biggest knife, but that's a pretty big knife. It's a solid knife. Yeah. Yeah. So it's intentional. It's not like. Like on a whim, pull it out like an opportunity, <laughs> yeah. like a moment of opportunity. Yeah. 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 Oh Somebody gosh. had brought that specific knife with uh-huh. them. Uh-huh. It's believed that the attack had started towards the foot of the stairs and that Sharon was then chased up the stairs, being stabbed repeatedly as she attempted to flee her attacker. She continued down the hall and attempted to lock herself in the bathroom, but was unsuccessful. The attack continued in the bathroom where Sharon ultimately died from her injuries. Oh. Horrifically enough, the murder of Sharon Gregory reads very much like any slasher film, and so this only adds more of a reason for Mark Branch to be the primary suspect in her death in the eyes of investigators. Quickly, news about Sharon's gruesome murder spread around town, and the people of Greenfield were immediately in a panic, especially because nobody could find Mark Branch. It was learned that Mark's car was no longer at his house, and according to management at Stop and Shop, Mark hadn't come by to pick up his paycheck. Oh, my And that was gosh. what he had told Scott he was doing yeah. that day. Oh, dude. Yeah. Scott cooperated with investigators and offered similar statements as others had. That Mark was a loner that would frequently talk about what it might be like to kill someone, but that he didn't think that he would ever actually do it. He recounted Mark's obsession with slasher films and with Friday the 13th. He also offered them a tip that would continue steering the investigation in the right direction. He told investigators that in the days leading up to Sharon's murder, Mark had told him multiple times that he was angry with the Gregory girls. Oh, man. But why? (sighs) So this is according to Scott's statement. Mark was angry at the girls because Sharon had completed a psychological profile of Mark, complete with a diagnosis and other sensitive elements pertaining to Mark's mental state for her psychology class. Oh, okay. So I just have to say before we keep going, I do not understand why this assignment was even allowed, like ethically, at the school, because these are not trained professionals that you're giving this assignment to. Right. And you're not giving them hypothetical cases to work with. Right. Or like even just case studies. They were told to find someone and profile them psychologically, which I just feel like is a very irresponsible assignment. I mean, I'm sure obviously that the professor never imagined that this kind of thing could spiral, but like they really should have. I'm not trying to blame anybody and like unfairly. Right. But like, it just doesn't sit right with me that they were given this assignment. Right. You know, let's just think about it for two seconds about the extreme, like, like pain, emotional. Right. That that would cause to somebody. Mm -hmm. Like even if let's just say it, it all comes back as like a, oh, wow, he's a great person. Like, yeah, you might feel okay about that, but you also might be like, especially if you're not asked mm-hmm. if, if that's okay. Like, and I can't imagine based on what I've heard about Mark so far that he would have been like, yeah, I, I, that's fine. I'll be I'll, <laughs> like, you can profile me. Cool. I, I have a feeling that that didn't happen. That is how it went, but it's like every description of it is so vague. All that I know is that Sharon had said, I know somebody who has had mental health struggles. And so I'm going to ask him if I can profile him. So they, her and Mark weren't like super close, but they Mm -hmm. were acquaintances. They grew up in the same town and um, they ran in similar circles. Sure. And so she'd asked him and he said, yeah, sure. And was initially very excited about it. And multiple people witnessed him actually giving her his medical records. Wow. With like formal diagnoses and stuff written out on them. I am very surprised. But these are, I have to remind everybody again, these are 18 year olds. Right. These are kids. And the fact that someone like Sharon, who discovered she was passionate about this, Mm -hmm. decided to, you know, run the ball up the field and do her best work that she could. Mm -hmm. 
makes sense. And the fact that Mark might have been sensitive about it makes sense. Right. What does not make sense is that this was allowed. Yeah. That seems like an odd assignment, no matter how you cut it. Because it's so sensitive, you know? Yeah. So anyway, uh, Scott went on to allege that Sharon had taken photos of Mark without his permission and that she had also still had his medical records in his possession, but that when she was asked by Mark for all of these things back because they were private Mm -hmm. and because he didn't like the way that the profile turned out, Mm -hmm. that the girls had kind of begun making fun of him. Oh, God. Like they were passing it back and forth Uh, and reading it together and giggling about it. Oh. But once again, they're 18. Right. Like, oh, that shouldn't be a death sentence. And it's It's so sad. It's 1988. It's so sad. There's so many things. There's so many things that people haven't like, like bullying was almost like. Still cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Weirdly. There's there's a problem. There are a lot of problems there, but you just said it. None of this is a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Like does not justify the actions that happened after. I know. It's just sad. It it, it makes the anger understandable. Yeah. I'd be mad. It makes the, um, it makes the, the relational kind of strife Mm -hmm. understandable. Oh, but man, to take it to that level that that's never okay. That's still not okay. I know. But oh my gosh. This is a tragic story. Yes. So when police searched Sharon's bedroom, they did find two photos of Mark on her desk, but they couldn't find the psychological profile. Interestingly though, Cheryl said that she had seen the profile, which was several pages long and which detailed Mark's mental state on Sharon's bed just three days before her murder. Mark had called Sharon on the 22nd of October, two days before the murder, telling her that he really didn't like the profile that Sharon had written and that he felt embarrassed by it, so he wanted it back. Cheryl um, basically said, like, oh, I'm sorry, he called Sharon. Their names are so similar. So he called Sharon and was like, can I have it? I don't like it. Like, it's upsetting. I don't like it. Can you just give it to me and not share it with anyone? So Sharon informed him that at the moment she couldn't give it back, to him because Cheryl was still reading it, but not to worry because she wouldn't share his name or any incriminating information about him for her final project that she would be submitting for school. So she's like, it sounds like she kind of de-escalated it a little bit and mm-hmm. was like, I've been working really hard on this for school. I understand it's sensitive. Nobody will know that this is you. Like yeah. you'll just yeah. be an invisible face in this report that I'm essentially making. Hmm. Okay. When Mark talked with Cheryl about it later on, she also assured him that when she had read it, she herself had cut Mark's name out of the report to keep his identity anonymous. This seemed to calm Mark down a little, and he asked Cheryl to burn the profile when she was done reading it. So it seems like they nobody's truly happy with how it turned sure, out, sure. but they've come to somewhat of an understanding about it. Okay. So to 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 backtrack for two seconds, because I am very surprised. Number one, that he was like, yeah, cool. Um, this was according to Cheryl when she was asked about it later, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what now makes more sense to me, and maybe I just missed this when you said it earlier, is that there, even though he was a little bit of a outsider, he was kind of part of their friend group in a way, it sounds like. It sort seems of. like the way that this, that the friendships kind of worked is that, like there are a lot of tangential friends, mm-hmm. like, like the boyfriends are friends with Scott. And yeah, so every yeah. once in a while they'd all be at a party together and they'd strike up a conversation with this guy or that girl. Right. And like, they would all, it's very small town in that way. Yeah. It's not a tiny town. I think it was something like 19 or 20,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like a, it's a little community college town, yeah. like small college town, Yeah. you know, and all these people had grown up with each other. Yeah. And so it does seem like, like acquaintances is too distant of a term, mm-hmm. but friends is probably too close of a term. But yeah. they they had a familiarity with each other. Yeah. I think is probably fair. So that that helps give some context mm-hmm. to not only the willingness to take part in this assignment on Mark's end, but also the like on on Sharon Sharon's end to say. Yeah, I'll I'll make sure to pull your name out. I understand sensitive, whatever. Like now, the context starts to make sense, and these are things that, for me, growing up in the city, I would never have known. But for you, growing up in a town kind of like this size, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So Even I'm like, smaller, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. 
So I, it, it, it fills in some gaps for me that I'm like, oh, okay. So Mark's not just this one kid out by himself all the time with maybe one or two people that he ever talks to. He mm-hmm. talks to all these people, yeah, but it's not like BFFs. But right. like you said, it's also not just acquaintances. It's, His couple so, yeah. of very close friends, like Scott and Derek, mm-hmm. like they were really, really good to him. Yeah. And like anytime he needed something, they were there. And like, I mean, even Scott being like, sure, I'll pick you up at 815 in the morning and drive you to a doctor's appointment and pick you up. And then we can hang out all day yeah. like that. They were really kind to him and it yeah. felt like they were they could see who he really was. Yeah. And um, it really is just. A tragic story. Yeah. I'll probably beat that horse a little bit, but yeah. it's just sad. Hmm. So Cheryl also stated that in August of 1988, Mark had told her about his Friday the 13th mask collection and that on Halloween the year prior, he had put on one of those masks and hid in the bushes at Greenfield Middle School. When a young girl walked close enough, Mark popped out of the bushes and began chasing her with a knife. But as the two of them ran, he tripped and fell, allowing the girl time to get away. He told Cheryl that if he hadn't tripped, that he absolutely would have killed that little girl and that he planned on trying again this upcoming Halloween. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah. He is a really confusing person because... I feel like as I was writing this and as I'm talking about it, one minute I'm like infuriated at him. Mm-hmm. And then the next minute I feel super bad for him and I have like a lot of compassion for his plight. Mm-hmm. And then I'm angry at him again. Right. He's a very conflicting character. And it sounds like that's actually probably pretty accurate just based off of how his friends described him. Right, right. They just never thought that when he would say those more outlandish things that he could have been serious. Right. So I don't know. He is such a conflicting Mm. person to me. On October 25th, police received a call from a woman named Diane Tuller in Buckland, Massachusetts, a small town 20 minutes away from Greenfield. Diane had called to report a gray Chevy Chevette with Massachusetts plates that had been illegally parked off of Avery Road near a heavily forested area and that there appeared to be no driver anywhere nearby. Police and the medical examiner headed to the scene and they quickly found the car. When they searched the car, which they quickly determined did belong to Mark, they found blood all over inside of the vehicle. From the steering wheel to the accelerator to the brakes to the seats to the door handles on the carpets, the gear shift, etc. It was absolutely everywhere. After this discovery, police believed that Mark likely abandoned his car and that he had possibly run off into the woods in an attempt to hide. They called in a whole team, including canine units and a helicopter, and performed a sweep of the area, but still, there was no sign of Mark Branch. Wow. Two days after the murder, Mark was still nowhere to be found, so police issued a warrant to search the Branch's home. When they entered Mark's room, they were actually pretty surprised. It was meticulously clean and tidy, but hidden away in the shelves and in drawers, they were disturbed to find his room full of horror movies and otherwise considered violent paraphernalia and memorabilia in his room. Mm -hmm. They found a dozen Jason Voorhees masks, knives and other sharp instruments, loads of horror movies, horror books, horror magazines, horror movie soundtracks on vinyl, a Michael Myers mask, (laughs) combat boots, other horror costumes, etc., leading them to further believe that Mark was motivated to kill Sharon Gregory due to the psychological profile and like the subsequent interactions based on the profile, and because he had a fantasy of murdering someone just like his favorite horror icon. Mm. Was Mark obsessed with the movies to an unhealthy degree? It does sort of seem like it. Yeah, yeah. Did he fantasize openly about killing people? Yes, he did. So I'm not going to like grandstand because we did already mention this. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say if the horror movies were the problem. I would say the horror movies existing was not the problem, but that Mark already had mental illness that was tending towards violence. Mm-hmm. And he did express fantasies about violence that seemed so unbelievable that nobody thought he would act on them. Right, And so it seemed like, Due to his mental state, he was not someone who should have been indulging that interest as much as he was. Right. And like I read the books and the 
list of movies and all the things that he had in his room. And it's like all things that I've seen that I'm a fan of. Right. Or have a strong opinion about because I hated this director's (laughs) execution of this thing or that thing or whatever. So like, (laughs) once again, it's not necessarily the movies themselves that Mm -hmm. were the problems, but it does seem like he was infatuated with them. The the infatuation of the movies only kind of threw some kindling on the fire that was already there is what it sounds like. Because it's one thing to like love horror and have Mm -hmm. like a favorite horror movie or even a franchise, but to be able to rationalize that they're works of fiction Mm -hmm. versus, you know, getting ideas, like keeping a playbook in your mind of like, that was a great kill. Like file that one away for a later date. You know, there's a difference between those things, you know? Yeah. So with all of these discoveries in Mark's room, his guilt in the case was further solidified in the minds of investigators and eventually with the public as well. These suspicions were only further confirmed when police questioned employees at the Video Expo One store, that other place where Mark sometimes worked on the weekends. Mm -hmm. It was learned that Mark was also an avid renter and buyer of movies there, and when asked about what types of movies that he tended to watch, the employee told police that he rented gore, strictly gore, Mm. period. Wow, yeah. So days ticked on with no clues as to where Mark may have been. Multiple calls were made from citizens believing that they had seen Mark out and about stalking the streets of Greenfield for his next victim. State police issued a warning to the citizens of Franklin County that Mark Branch was wanted in connection with the murder of Sharon Gregory and that he should be considered armed and dangerous. But with Mark still at large as the Halloween holiday approached, the town of Greenfield and surrounding communities suspended the festivities in the name of safety. Hmm. Trick-or-treating was not a thing that year. Wow. Showings of classic horror films were suspended, and overall, the citizens of Greenfield were on high alert. We do also have to keep in mind that Mark had told Cheryl that he had planned on killing, on like, again, on Halloween night. So, honestly, people were, like, afraid to sleep, afraid to take out the trash, yeah. etc. While other citizens of the town Ooh. were more on, I guess, the offensive. Yeah, they if you were. you want to say it that were. way. Waiting, staking him out. Mm-hmm. So Derek Ianelli, Mark's friend, ran into some hunters in the days following Sharon's murder. He asked them if they were going after bucks or does, to which the men responded, neither, we're going after branches. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so there was like a pitchfork mob going after Mark. Jeez. Friends and loved ones of Mark were afraid that he was possibly in danger or that he could strike again, even if only out of fear for his own safety. It was truly a hot mess. Mm. The town held hostage by fear with a murderer on the loose. As weeks passed with no success in finding Mark, police turned to an alternative source for help. A psychic detective named John Monty. A psychic detective. A psychic detective. Wow, just like Monk. (laughs) Yes. Monty had assisted with dozens of criminal and missing persons investigations in the area, and so they thought, we've got nothing else, Like, so we might as well just try it. For a few days, police followed Monty's lead wherever he went, but when the efforts turned up no results, they parted ways and were stuck playing the waiting game. Finally, on November 28th, a hunter scoping out like an area that he was planning on hunting in stumbled upon the body of Mark Branch. He had hung himself from a tree in the Buckland area not far from where his car had been abandoned, and it turns out police had been within 600 feet of Mark's body when they had conducted their initial search of the woods. Oh. Yeah. They were that close. I'm like, you brought in canines and helicopters and got within 600 feet and you didn't find him. Oh. Like, oh, they they did try. Like, and this investigation really did go really quickly. Mm -hmm. Like, they did try to act fast because they understood the urgency of it. Yeah. But man, like, that's a bummer that he was there all that time. Based on the state of Mark's remains, it's believed that he completed suicide within hours of Sharon's murder. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so it's unclear whether it was out of remorse or because he was afraid of getting caught. But police did believe that this was a pretty cut and dry case of suicide and that nobody else was involved in Mark's death. But others have wondered if perhaps, like the parents in A Nightmare on Elm Street, if maybe the citizens of Greenfield took justice into their own hands and staged the scene as a suicide. Mm. 
but investigators have stated that there is no evidence that would indicate that to be the case here at all. Yeah. That sounds kind of like somebody having like a, I'm going to add a fancy twist to this story by pulling out a horror movie to compare it to, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's it's a little bit poetic, but it's also not helpful. Not helpful at all. So... And and dehumanizing. Right. Well, and I think no matter what the reasoning was on Mark's end, like the fact that it happened so shortly after, in in my mind, it it speaks to like a very at best just unstable mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. At worst, could go so far into mental health, could go so far into yeah. all sorts of things. But it's just sad, yeah. Because that's that's an instability moment that he's, you know, whether he's, oh no, oh no, I'm gonna get caught, or oh no, oh no, what have I done? Mm-hmm. Either way, that's really sad. I know, I know. In the aftermath of Sharon's death, her loss was felt deeply across Greenfield. She was buried in the farm cemetery in Northfield, and even a year after her passing, people across the community came together to mourn their loss. And tragically, with the prime suspect dead, the case was closed with little to no actual answers. And we are left with just two families and one community forever changed by stomach-churning traumatic loss. Mm. The branches remained private during their grieving time, not wanting to compound the pain felt by the Gregories, but also worried that there were other children like Mark who, despite people's best efforts, might still fall through the cracks and commit similarly terrible crimes if— that was allowed to happen. Yeah. All in all, this is just a terrible story that we don't really have a full understanding of without the victim or the most li- likely suspect mm-hmm. alive. Neither yeah. of them are alive. They yeah. can't give us the answers to our many questions surrounding this case. But that's what I have for you today. Wow. Oh, that one is really heartbreaking. It really is. No, like there's not an angle that you can look at this story and not feel sad. Right. It's, it's very it's tragic. unlike most true crimes that we've talked about mm-hmm. because it it doesn't really feel like there's a true vic, uh, villain. It mm-hmm. feels like everybody's kind of a victim in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I and, mean, Mark's behavior was absolutely detestable. Right. And I wish that justice could have been served. Right. And that he would have been able to give Sharon's family closure and his own family absolutely like, closure and the, the opportunity to still see him, ask him questions, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that opportunity was taken away when he died. But right. it's just, I mean, it's just terrible. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think really what I'm trying to get at is Mark's whole reasoning behind all of this is that he's a victim of the times he lived in. Mm. He's a victim of uh, just some really unfortunate relational strife. Yeah. And like at the end of the day, this wouldn't have happened if he, if he had been able to, to be properly cared for in the way that he really needed. And he got a lot of great care. Yeah. So that's, that's where it gets to be kind of a gray area, but even still, it just kind of feels like it didn't have to happen. Yeah. Um, which is true all the time, but it's especially true when it feels like he wasn't just on a vendetta. Right. There were like road, like roadblocks in place Mm -hmm. to like, hopefully prevent him from lashing out in violence. Mm -hmm. That's why I have such mixed feelings about him as the murderer. Like, right. Right. I can, without even blinking, completely denounce everything that he did to Sharon because it was terrible and awful. And she did not deserve that no matter how you slice it. Right. While also feeling compassion for his mental health and just the struggle that he went through and the lack of, even though he had resources afforded to him, it was just part of the the times, you know, a little bit in a way. You said it earlier. You have a moment of feeling really, really like, like frustrated and mad at him. And then you have a moment of being really like sad for him. Mm -hmm. And 
swings back and forth on that pendulum really extremely. Yeah. Um, and in my mind, that's why it feels like there are no true villains. He wasn't just mm-hmm. some evil dude with a desire to hurt people. He was somebody who had unbalanced desires. Yeah. Who didn't know how to deal with certain things, who was addicted in a way to some thought processes, who found a lot of just pleasure in uh, some darker entertainment, mm-hmm. but then that kind of consumed him. So it, it's 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 just it's just sad in my mind to think about him first, and then it enrages me because the action still doesn't match. So I, I, I yeah, I don't know. I, I feel just a lot of sadness about it. Yeah, and I feel like I I do get where you're coming from in all of that. I think that at the end of the day, the most important thing is that our our sympathy is always with the victim first. You know? Sure. Yeah. Well, with that, everybody, thanks so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Also, the major bummer <laughs> of a story yeah. too. Uh, if you haven't already, please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast on your favorite listening platform, and that you leave a glowing five star review or whatever the equivalent is of a review on your listening platform. Those do help to bring this podcast in front of other people who like similar podcasting uh, shows. Also, if you haven't already, make sure that you're following us on social media. We're on Instagram and TikTok at This One Is A Doozy and on Facebook, This One's A Doozy Podcast. And if you want to get even more great content and get more connected with us, you can join us on Patreon. My love, why don't you tell them a little bit about Patreon? Yes. So you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. Supporters on Patreon get access to all of our content ad-free, along with two additional bonus episodes each month that are exclusive to Patreon. And for the whole month of October, we've got fictional stories every single Friday also exclusive on Patreon. So if you're interested in any of that, head on over. Yes. Patreon is awesome. And all of those episodes are some of my very favorites. Mine too. They're so good. So don't miss out. Jump in, join in. With that, everybody, we will see you on Monday for another bonus episode, spooky season bonus episode. Don't miss it. We'll see you then. Bye.